Blog Talk Radio.
point that I want to make, and I, I think it's important with all the news going on to at least connect with all of you on, on some of the news. But if, you know, I start to feel eh, flagging at the end, I, I may cut off a little bit after the hour. We'll have to see how it goes. Uh, if you go to the blog, go to DontLetItGo.com, you'll see the list of program notes for today's show. And the title of today's show is Refugees and the Right to Bear Arms. So in general, of course, I want to talk about the terrorist atrocities of the last week and uh, the Syrian refugee debate that has arisen as a result of, of these atrocities. And towards the end, talk about a connection uh, to the right to bear arms protected by our Second Amendment, not only because you might need to defend yourself against some jihadists, but this is a good reason, but I've got some other points to make as well. So we'll get to that. Those of you who want to talk are welcome to call in, particularly today, like I said, where I'm a little bit on the weaker side, 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. I see Ed is there in the chat room, Fiona, Robert, Freedom Breeze, John, Jean, Rob. Rob asked me, how's the brain fog? And I told him, you're going to have to tell me how my brain fog is today. I've got a set of program notes, like usual, over at the blog. I also have a, a few bits of uh, jotted down notes on a page in front of me to really help my adult brain out. So we'll see how I do here. Uh, the first story to discuss is another horrible terrorist atrocity. By the way, I wanted to say um, I was really lucky that when I was in the hospital, I had not heard the news about France until say, Saturday afternoon or so, one of the nurses mentioned it because I was having such a hard time coming out from under those drugs and, and really not liking the feeling that in the situation and the, the way I was feeling, I would not have handled the news very well at all. It was a horrible, horrible tragedy. And then this morning, we are uh, greeted by yet a horrible, another horrible attack in Mali this time. They're saying that dozens are feared dead as the hostage situation in the Mali Hotel has apparently come to an end. Um, this is an attack that Al-Qaeda has reportedly claimed responsibility for. So now what we seem to have is we have ISIS doing one horrible atrocity and Al-Qaeda committing another horrible atrocity and somehow competition with ISIS to see who can be more evil more nihilistic, more vicious, more homicidal. And um, what they're saying is initial reports from the field indicate 27 killed in the attack. But I think, of course, that was probably updated later. I'm looking at a Fox News story that might be a bit outdated. If any of you in the chat room, oh, Ed says 32 last count. Yeah, and, and this may be revised as time goes on. Ed, did you hear what has happened to the perpetrators have they been killed? Have they been captured? Um, I always, you know, I'm always torn because they deserve to be slaughtered, these perpetrators, but at the same time, you could get some useful information from them as long as they don't then go and languish in Guantanamo for a while only to be released, you know, do the catch and release. I wonder if any of these Al-Qaeda guys were one of the guys recently released. I don't know if anybody's I mean, I don't know if they could get mobile that quickly. 
Rob says last that he checked it was ongoing. So maybe it isn't still ending. Okay. Fiona says, and then there's Boko Haram who have killed more collectively than either Daesh or Al-Qaeda. So they're kind of competing to see who can have the largest body count. 27 Mali victims is what uh, Ed is saying. Oh, oh, you're talking about the 32. Okay, I'm sorry. 32 last count was a one-word comment from Ed. 32 is the last count of how many governors are against the refugee plan. Is that it? Yes, yes. Okay. So 27 Mali victims, not 32. Um, yeah. But this, you know, this idea that now we have in our world competing jihadist groups trying to show you who can commit the most carnage out there. This is not a world that we all thought we would be living in, I bet, when we were growing up. Certainly not what I would, you know, what I would have thought. So what do we have? We have a refugee issue. Of course, some of these people in France have been identified as so-called Syrian refugees. And when you say Syrian refugees, one of the things that you learn is that a lot of the so-called Syrian refugees are not really from Syria. I guess they were originally from Syria, and then many of them go and resettle to Jordan and Turkey and other places. And then even though they have an alternative place to live where they're not in danger from Assad, which is the reason you call them refugees, they are now still applying to uh, come in under the refugee program here. But yes, the big issue now is what do we do with the plan that Obama has? I believe it was to settle 10,000 Syrian refugees here in the United States. And I've seen vigorous debate going on on Facebook about that. Um, but you know, this is a, a real risk and this is something we want to talk about. Now, before we get there, just one thing, and I posted this on Facebook. You guys can follow me on Facebook if you want to see some news stories that I'm interested in during the week. But Mayor Bill de Blasio and his police commissioner have apparently, in the wake of ISIS' recent video in which they promised to do more France-style, you know, Paris-style attacks, in other cities, and, and they show pictures of Times Square, so therefore implying New York is a target, uh, you're just supposed to ignore that. It's not a specific credible threat, and you know, just trust that they're going to protect you. Of course, in New York City, you can't go and defend yourself with your own weapon. Um, but yeah, you're you know you're just you're just supposed to ignore it and feel good like our leaders are protecting us. One good bit of news is that the there's a there's a group a privacy group that is backed by Apple, Google, and Microsoft, and they have rejected calls for weaker encryption in our devices after the Paris attacks. So there is a, a lot of a reaction in terms of questioning a refugee program, we haven't seen a lot of reaction in terms of questioning our privacy so far, at least. I hope that there's not going to be, you know, a, I mean, leave it to Obama to use this as an excuse to increase bulk, you know, metadata collection, bulk surveillance of all kinds. But so far, Apple, Google, and Microsoft-based groups have, um, you know, stood firm on that issue. So good, good to hear that. Only 28% in the country support Obama's plan for Syrian refugee migrants, only 28%. And as some people were informing me here in the chat room, we've got 
32 Republican governors who are opposing this refugee settlement plan. Uh, if you guys want to call in and talk about, you know, are you pro or con or why not, I am certainly myself, as you could probably tell from the program notes. Again, go to DontLetItGo.com. You can see all the program notes I have there. You can see from just my editorial selection of links that I'm leaning towards halting this program at the very least and trying to scrutinize, you know, what sort of screening programs are, um, you know, are actually out there and, and available and, and are they effective, et cetera. Uh, as it stands, only 28% of Americans, uh, think about that, only 28% of Americans, and yet still, if it's only 32 governors who are in opposition, that we have a number of people in power in this country, again, de Blasio among them, who thinks that we should just accept the fact that our leaders will not adequately protect us, that it is somehow un-American to turn refugees away. And I'm, a, I'm of a different belief. I believe that if we are going to have a proper foreign policy, a policy in which we pursue our right to self-defense in a, you know, in a, in a way that is rationally self-interested, right, that is going to be, and I've quoted Yaron, uh, there was an article a long time ago, you know, written by uh, Yaron Brook and Alex Epstein, where they kind of laid all this out, just war theory versus American self-defense. And it's also in Winning the Unwinnable War that Alain Giorno has edited uh, through the Ayn Rand Institute. Um, they have stated so many times that what do you do with a fo proper foreign policy? You eliminate the threat as quickly and as inexpensively as possible with minimal loss of life on our side. Now, it doesn't mean that you go out, you know, kind of um, recklessly spewing collateral damage and killing innocent civilians of the enemy insofar as that's not necessary to actually defeat the enemy, to remove the risk, right? But now we have seen the risk is to our allies, the risk is to us, directly from ISIS. And so if part of what we need to do, for example, is go over there and do some really extensive bombing in the region that will result in some civilian casualties, but that is what is necessary to remove this threat, that is what should be done. There will be, unfortunately, some collateral damage involved in that. And similarly, I would see the need to refuse a swarm of migrants that you cannot adequately screen I see that as part of legitimate collateral damage. Uh, Fiona says there's a psychological warfare going on with the refugees too. Now you may need to call in and explain what you mean by that. Um, I could, you know, kind of speculate, but I'd be interested to hear exactly what you have about that. Again, if people do want to call 760-888-5817 is the number to call. So we've got only 28% in support. We have uh, 32 governors saying they will not. I know that Senator Ted Cruz has tried to introduce legislation putting a hold on um, this program, and he calls it, as I gather, the terrorist refugee infiltration. Sorry, I'm going through all these pop-up ads that the Washington Times gives you. It's very annoying, these ads. Why the Terrorist Refugee Infiltration 
Prevention Act of 2015 is necessary. He's got an opinion piece there explaining why it's necessary. And I, I think it's important to get the word out that we need this as a proper policy of self-defense. It's not to be bigoted. It is not to purposefully deny innocent people. You know, when I when I titled today's show, um, you know, Refugees and, and the Right to Bear Arms, I had considered putting refugees in scare quotes because a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, there's... But there are some real refugees. So grant the premise that there are some real refugees who we would actually like to have as part of a free society, some who might even be willing to integrate over here. The only problem is is that if we cannot adequately filter out those people who wish to do us harm, which as I understand is clearly possible, then part of a good policy of self-defense, a proper rational foreign policy of self-defense, is not allowing these refugees in here as much as we would like to have them. And one piece that I gave you in the program notes, just to kind of remind you of some some good stuff that's been out there this week, is the one um, from National Review. And the original headline was something like, no, you know, the Syrian refugees are not 1939 uh, Jews. You know, from, from but the the headline was revised as follows. It says there are serious, unbigoted reasons to be wary of a flood of Syrian refugees. And to me, if you say, okay, um, if we don't allow the Syrian refugees, therefore we are doing the same thing as not allowing the Jews in in the late 30s. That I think is completely wrong. Um, and I think the first disanalogy. Uh, is the one that should be most obvious to everyone. Here, quoting from the National Review article, he says, quote, there was no international conspiracy of German Jews in the 1930s attempting to carry out daily attacks on civilians on several continents. No self-identifying Jews in the early 20th century were randomly massacring European citizens in magazine offices and concert halls, and there was no, quote, Jewish state establishing sovereignty over tens of thousands of square miles of territory and publicly slaughtering anyone who opposed its advance. Among Syrian Muslims, by contrast, there is. A vast, the vast majority of Syrian Muslims are not party to these strains of radicalism and violence, but it would be dangerous to suggest that they do not exist and that our refugee resettlement program need not take account of them. And there are a number of articles out there with statistics about, uh, for example, the Sarnav brothers were refugees, even though people want to deny that fact now. They came in through a refugee program. Um, there have been 60-some-odd people, I think, in the last year and a half arrested in the United States for ISIS ties. These people are coming here, and as we've seen them do in France, they will use uh, the ability to come in as part of the Syrian refugee movement to infiltrate, come here, and commit terrorist atrocities. The sympathies, and this is continuing from the, the National Review article, the sympathies of Syrian Muslims are more diverse than those of Nazi-era German Jews. A recent Arab Opinion Index poll of 900 Syrian refugees found that one in eight hold to a, quote, to some extent positive view of the Islamic State, 
Another 4% said that they did not know or refused to answer. Ha ha. A non-trivial minority of refugees who support a murderous, metastic caliphate, continues the article, is a reason for serious concern. No 13% of Jews looked favorably upon the Nazi party, for example. And in fact, of course, they were victims of the Nazi party. Uh, the, the article also goes on to talk about the fact that European Jews in the 20th century were more amenable to assimilation. Um, but here, of course, with Syria, it's very, very different. The intellectual, cultural, and political traditions of Syria are not in concert with those of the West. And it would be foolish to think that that does not matter, especially when combined with the uncertain sympathies noted above. Right? There may be people who come here and when they find themselves uncomfortable here, could be drawn to be sympathetic with ISIS. Uh, motive power in the chat room reminds us, there were no Jews chanting death to America. Yes, this is very, very important to, uh, you know, to remember. The other thing is you hear stories of, you know, among these Syrian migrants, you would think that Christians would be more sympathetic and people who would be better at assimilating here in the United States than the Muslims who could be, you know, more likely to be sympathetic with ISIS. And you hear these stories about there's boats of the refugees coming over and that the Muslims just dump the Christians overboard. Lots of horror stories. And uh, what was it? There was six so-called Syrian refugees intercepted in Honduras recently with forged Greek documents, travel documents or passports or whatever. There there are serious issues here. And no, you are not a bigot. It is a stupid analogy to say that if you turn away the Syrian refugees today, then it's just like um you know, just like turning away the Jews before World War Two. Freedom Bree says, I think the psychological component of those who would be sympathetic with ISIS is low self esteem, perhaps. Perhaps, definitely. Um, now, oh, they're talking about Saudi Arabia and ISIS that has made it. Okay, I'm going to have to check it out. Rob Abiria has a New York Times piece in the chat room. Anyway, thanks for all of the information that you're giving me here. Again, I'm a little slow today, so I may not be able to process the chat room and stay on track as well as I'd like to. But let's see. Uh, let's see how we're doing. Okay, so... So when Cruz talks about why this Refugee Act is necessary, he goes into specifics about the number of people in the refugee program and the inability to properly screen the refugees. So, for example, um, he says, uh, you know, recently he says, uh, President Obama has doubled down on his dangerous open borders policy by proposing to welcome thousands of refugees who have been potentially infiltrated by terrorists to the United States. He says this headlong rush towards a careless policy comes just weeks after FBI Director James Comey told Congress in no uncertain terms that our government lacks the tools to properly screen these refugees. Okay? So what is Obama asking us to do? He's asking us to accept a risk ask basically you know to sacrifice our peace of mind and safety accept this risk for the so-called american ideal 
of self-sacrifice. That's what he's trying to identify with the American ideal, that this is what it is to be truly American. There are some people among this group we know that do need help. And so therefore, who are we to insist on adequate screening to preserve our safety? You know, there was some stuff out there about Obama saying, why does America have to have leadership and why do we have to have focus on winning? We just focus on keeping our own safety. We properly Americans, again, we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. And what is the intellectual foundation of that? It is being rationally selfish. And part of being rationally selfish, I think you would agree with me, is that you would like your safety just to be able to go out and enjoy a concert, a meal at a restaurant without thinking that on every day there's a very real risk that that's going to be the location of the next terrorist attack. Um, For Obama to insist that we admit these refugees without proper screening, that we, you know, sacrifice our peace of mind, it does really make you doubt whether he has our interest in mind or whether he has our enemy's interest in mind uh, above it. (laughs) Selfishness in the chat room says, has anyone heard Obama say, speaking for myself? No, he always wants to pretend to, to speak on our behalf. I'm going to continue with Ted Cruz's piece a little bit here, and then I'm going to pick up the call. I think Ed is going to chime in here in a second. It says, uh, since the beginning of the Syrian refugee crisis, more than 2,100 refugees from Syria have already been admitted to the United States. President Obama now wants to accept at least 10,000 more this fiscal year. Now, keep in mind, there's one other aspect I haven't talked about yet. Refugees, okay, can we adequately screen them so that we feel like we are not putting Americans at risk because protecting Americans is job one. There's that. And then the question is, at what cost are they being brought here? The bills that I've seen talked about, as I understand them, they are based on cutting off funding for these refugee programs. Why are my tax dollars being used to bring in people who pose a danger to me? This is a huge question. So you could say, okay, we should accept some refugees, and if some charitable organizations want to do it, and they can be adequately screened, and the law enforcement that's on the ground believes that they have the capability to protect us against the inevitable few that will get through the screening and then they'll, you know, nonetheless pose a danger. We do not have a moral obligation to take in people who, you know, statistically speaking, are beyond the capacity of our current law enforcement. So he says 10,000 more this fiscal year. That's roughly a third of the 34,000 total refugees that Obama proposes to accept from the Near East and South Asia. Uh, Cruz says the policy makes no sense. Given the existential nature and scope of the threat uh, posed by radical Islamic terrorism, the limitations on our ability to screen the flood of refugees and the obligations of our government to provide for the safety and security of all Americans, we simply cannot accept refugees from countries that have a significant terrorist presence until the terrorist threat has been eliminated. Right? We need to eliminate the terrorist threat. And of course, Obama the other day, when questioned about whether he was now reconsidering his evaluation of ISIS as the so-called JV, and should he, you know, was he kind of caught flat-footed? Did he need to reevaluate his strategy against ISIS? He essentially said no. And... um Shepard Smith is 
the uh, you know reporter from Fox News, and he turned commentator the other day when he was assigned to report on Obama's speech, you know, before the G20 or whatever the other day. Uh, he was visibly, visibly upset. I mean, if if you would find that at all kind of cathartic or comforting to see a journalist who usually tries to remain neutral himself express, you know, uh, significant disappointment with what the president said, you know, right after his remarks, right there in front of the American people on Fox News, which has got some of the biggest ratings out there, I think you would find that reassuring. Um, that terrorist threat needs to be eliminated. Obama does not have a proper strategy to do so. He doesn't seem to be interested in developing one, and yet he's asking us to bring in, without adequate screening, 10,000 of these refugees over the course of the next year in um you know, along with, as we're seeing, ISIS still making threats, and I think specific threats, can you say credible? I don't know. It depends what you believe, um, towards New York. Okay, I've, uh, take a breath and talk to Ed. Hello, Ed. Hey, how you doing? How are you feeling? Um, I think I'm doing okay. I'm a little, little bit of fog here, and I do thank you for, for calling in to help me out. How are you? I, I'm doing just fine. I, I enjoy opiates, uh, but uh, apparently they, they hit you like a truck. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I haven't, I have not taken, I've not taken a single opiate-based, you know, pill since I think Monday night. I took one. Okay, so we're here Friday, and I haven't even oh. taken Ty, I haven't even taken Tylenol, not even Tylenol oh. since a few days ago. So. In terms of pain, I'm a tough cookie. In terms of drugs, ooh, I'm a wimp. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Um, so let's see, what's going on in the world? Oh, yeah, Islam again. Who would have thunk it? Yeah, right, right. So I have a couple of things. Um, there was a study uh, done by Pew Research in um, 2007 uh, where it, it's basically called, you can look it up on the web, basically called Muslim Americans, Middle Class and Mostly Mainstream, May 22nd, 2007. Okay. Um, and it finds uh, mostly what you would think, uh, that, um, uh, that uh, you know, a substantial fraction of uh, American Muslims aren't in favor of terrorism. I mean, we I don't think that's... Uh, controversial, and that they just want to live their lives. However, it does have an interesting little uh, thing here where it says, well, do you support suicide bombing? 26% of U.S. Muslims between 18 and 29 support suicide bombing. Now, there's 3 million Muslims in the United States, and so that's 226,000 Muslims uh, at least at the time of the survey, that uh, are living in the United States and support suicide bombing and are in the age range of people who would think about doing that. So it's a, that's a kind of a disturbing uh, thing. And, of course, it's way worse in uh, Britain. It's 35% and in France, 42%. Um, and, but let's... Let's look at the study methodology, right? Somebody calls you on the phone and says, well, are you a Muslim? We want to interview you. I mean, what, what is the sample bias? Do you think 
you think the sample bias might be people who don't believe in suicide bombing saying they do believe it, or do they? You think the sample bias might be right, for people right. who I mean, yeah, do again, believe you know, the, the, it saying they right. don't believe it, right? So right, I mean, this right. is this is this twenty six percent of eighteen to twenty nine actually admit to someone on the phone that they believe in suicide bombing. That's just crazy. I mean, that that's literally insane. Uh, yeah, and that's, and that's 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 why um that's why in that national review piece they added in the 4% who, you know, declined a state or whatever, at least you're going to add those in, and then you've got the 13%. I mean, this is, uh, to, to think yeah. that there's there's a population of migrants or refugees or whatever that we want to bring in somewhere between 13 and 26%, even if we're going to use the conservative numbers, uh, basically wish harm, to our country, support efforts to do things to kill people in our country, as, as unthinkable. Yeah. It is unthinkable, and we're supposed to just, you know, trust yeah, de Blasio. Trust de Blasio. The interesting thing about the refugee program, uh, from what I can tell from a lot of reading, is that the standards for refugees are actually rather uh, strict. And mm-hmm. given that the war has the war has been going on for. Uh, I don't know, close to five years now, I guess, uh, maybe four. Um, and we've only let in 2,000, uh, basically shows that when the rules are followed, um, the uh, the program can work. And so, right, right. Uh, but then, but then the like question- if, it, if it was, was 2,000 some odd over a number of years, you could see yeah. how we have adequate resources to properly screen all of them and keep out the bad guys. But if you're going to bring in 10,000 in one year and you think you're going to have the same type of quote success rate and, and there still oh, have he, been. What, and he wants you, to go up to 65,000 or, or a hundred thousand. And you just, there's just he, not the he resources. Wants, he wants to, to destroy us before he gets out of office. I mean, this is the only conclusion yeah. you can think he's, he's trying to do everything he can to, you know, bring in some sort of horrible parasitic worm to undo the country in his absence because, you know, he, he's not done destroying us yet. He wants to bring in a force that can do it for him. I mean, this is what I'm starting to think. It's, you know, I've got on my list here uh, Daniel Greenfield's piece, um, Obama wants to defeat America, not ISIS. And this is not yeah, really the I kind of that headline article. that, yeah, this is not kind of the kind of headline that I'm, I, I'm, I write myself, but I'm becoming sympathetic to this line of thinking. The other interesting thing about the uh, the refugee program is one of the standards by which you are to, that is our foreign service officers, are to judge refugees is do they face the threat of harm due to religious discrimination? That is, their particular religion is being targeted for uh, mm. harm or, or genocide or, or whatnot. Right. And and that's that's part of the law. It was an article, read the law, right. and they're not doing it. They're they're not following that. And, and there are plenty of Syrian Christians. There are plenty of these Yazidis, which is a kind of a, a weird offshoot of I think Zoroastrianism. Okay. Uh, there are other um, non-Muslims. I mean, for, for and, these, people, these uh, groups, I say I say whatever floats your boat. As long as you want to come here and enjoy a culture of freedom, and you don't want to harm me or the people I care about, 
whatever floats yeah. your boat. Zoroastrian? Okay, fine. <laughs> but we're not, yeah. um, you know, you would think, well, yeah, sure, we should accept the Yazidis and the Christians because mm-hmm. the Islamic State is, you know, Targeting them, committing yeah. genocide genocide against them. Just like we accepted, I mean, this, this is the example of, of just like we accepted the Jews from uh, Germany. Or we didn't accept very many of them, unfortunately, because exactly. FDR was a, a flaming anti-Semite. But we, we did some, um, and that's the correct parallel. But right. the Muslim Syrian refugees, uh, that's another story. So it gets back to, you know, is it proper to... Um, it, is it proper to distinguish a person based on his religion? And the law, which has never been overthrown, never been um, struck down, says yes. Says yes. If they are facing religious persecution in their country, that's they go to the front of the line. But the Obama will not allow that to happen. And so it, it does seem to me that he is not, in fact, interested in refugees. He is, in fact, interested in pandering to one of the biggest, one of the most guaranteed Democratic voting bloc, and that is in the United States. So, you, so you would say uh, it's it's about a voting bloc, and it's not necessarily about he wants to actually bring in people who will harm Americans. He wants to bring in people who will vote Democratic. I think yes, yeah, his. I think that's his primary reason. I mean, you know, those two things are are the same basically. But I think his primary reason isn't necessarily that that he wants to bring in people who will shoot cartoonists or blow up uh, train stations, um, right. but that he he really wants to uh, pay back, you know, you know, to keep keep this coalition of, of the uh, aggrieved uh, together. Um, which he hasn't necessarily done. I mean, I, I certainly think he's anti-American. I mean, there's no question about that. Um, I mean, you know, think, think but, about this uh, man. He, you know, he, he gives a speech. He does not get at all animated or angry about ISIS, who is responsible for killing so many innocent civilians out to have a good time in, in, in Paris last week. And he only gets visibly angry when he's talking about Republicans who would dare to thwart his refugee program to bring in, you know, to be kind of charitable to Obama, all of these Democratic voters. But at the worst is, you know, he actually knows that he's bringing in. I mean, some people, they have these theories about um, he wants to bring in these people that's going to cause Americans to, like, go out and use their guns incorrectly and so therefore have an excuse to take up everybody's weapons or something like that. I don't know. It, it may just be what you're saying, that, that he says, look, I've got a guaranteed Democratic voter block if I bring these people in, and I don't care if I have to you know, court some risk for some minority of Americans to achieve the dream of fundamentally transforming the United States. Uh, now, uh, you mentioned guns. Of course, that's one of my hobby horses. So I want to tell you another interesting thing about our immigration uh, um, thing with regard to guns. Uh, if you are a permanent resident of the United States but not a citizen, you have all the rights in the Bill of Rights. The Supreme Court has ruled that uh, numerous times. And in, indeed, one of those uh, rights is the right to keep and bear arms. So if you come to work on a work visa or if you come on 
visitor's visa or anything like that. You can't go into a gun store and buy a gun. But if you are, are a permanent resident, including if you are a refugee, wow. you can walk into any gun store in the United, in your state, whatever state you're in, and purchase as many and as whatever weapons you want. Uh, because you, uh, being a refugee, you are a permanent resident. Um, now, of course, I'm not in favor of gun control. I'm in favor of you know keeping evil people out control. Uh, right. But that is that is a that is the refugee loophole or whatever it will be called by the well. And the, then uh, and then again, men. you know, if we've had some relative success bringing over 2,000 refugees in in the past several years. And now you're asking to ramp that up to 10,000, and it's going to be 10,000 people that are also going to end up having those same rights. And law enforcement is telling us that they cannot possibly properly screen and track the activities of all of these people to adequately protect us. Just statistically speaking, this is, is very, very troubling. Yeah, I find it I find it very uh, difficult. I mean, I you know we had this discussion about immigration before, and I certainly am not in favor of uh, keeping out anybody who's uh, going to be a good American and good and productive and and uh, help the country. But um, but wow, this this seems this seems like he's setting it up for failure, and I don't. Right. Uh, and I don't well, know, and and, uh, and there are some elements among Republicans who are sympathetic, right, with with bringing in the refugees, or are they the Republicans all starting to line up behind the side that says no, we need to keep them out? You cite you cited well, 30, I mean, 30, as, as, as you've pointed out, the, as you've pointed out in the past and earlier in this program, I, I think it's it's altruism that is uh, that is dominating. So I think that. Um, the more seriously you take uh, Christianity's uh, view that we must sacrifice for our fellow man, uh, the more seriously you want to bring in all refugees, um, even the you know bring in a million if you know if uh, five or ten thousand are bad, um, you know that's just the price we have to pay for. Uh, being good Christians, I, I've I've read that in a number of articles. Right. You know, try and keep out the bad ones, but you know that's just the way things are. Right, and then and then, and then I've heard the self-interested argument for bringing in refugees. Um, I mean, there's a few. You know, one is ISIS doesn't want us to bring in refugees, so we should, right? Um, well, that's so you, ridiculous. That's not you even do it in defiance I mean, of ISIS, right? Um, the yeah. if we're in favor of a free market, we want more good people here to be part of our economy and the blah blah blah, right? And I, I'm I'm all for various you know aspects of of the self-interested argument for bringing in good refugees, but again, you cannot ignore the fact that we have law enforcement telling us it is impossible to adequately screen this population. You cannot deny the fact that some of these people have been through our screening processes and nonetheless have committed horrible atrocities on American soil. The Sarnav brothers, Hassan, Hassan was in the military. Yeah. You know, he wasn't screened, yeah. um, you know, in Fort Hood. So th- this idea that we're just supposed to sit back and, quote, trust the system, trust Obama, trust de Blasio, after all, the government is us, or whatever their stupid catchphrase is, uh, I think Americans are not going to have it. And, and this is a theme that was brought up 
by um, uh, you know by Greenfield. Greenfield was saying, and again, I always recommend that you read the entire piece of Greenfield because I can never do it justice on this show. I, I suppose if I really uh, marked it up totally, I, I would be good, but I'm a little addled today. But he brought up the idea that you've uh, he Obama wants ISIS to go away, sort of. And the reason that he does is that if ISIS does too much, then ISIS is going to awaken the sleeping giant, which is America. And he wants basically to destroy America. And he talks about, you know, uh, the the shifting strategy. First, he said he wanted to dismantle, and then he said he wanted to contain, and that he had contained. But, of course, we've seen last week that he has not contained ISIS in any way, shape, or form. And Greenfield is concluding that, Obama doesn't want to contain ISIS. He wants to contain America. And he's got some just wonderful zingers in here. Um, you know, that, that Obama doesn't win wars. He lies about them. That he doesn't want, you know, to contain ISIS. He wants to contain uh, American power. Um, he says he doesn't have a strategy for defeating ISIS. He has a strategy for defeating America. Do you think that, it, you think it's more about trying to, bring in and appease Democratic voting factions than it is about a serious kind of explicit desire to destroy America? It's more via that, you know, bringing in the voting oh, I'm law? Talking, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I think the refugee issue is a, is a pandering. Obviously, the ISIS issue is not a pandering uh, issue. This, it's, it's a definite, what Greenfield says. Him, him, um, uh, Obama wants to move the United States out of the fighting these guys business um, because he doesn't, he thinks America is the problem in the world. American action is the problem. American use of force is the problem. American right. leadership is the problem. We're going to lead from behind. I think it's fairly clear that he, he thinks all of uh, uh, that the United States has to get out of the business of fighting these groups. Uh, that's why he let uh, you know didn't do say anything as Putin moved the Russians in, and the, the Russians apparently are doing pretty good. Actually, they started out really weak, like they didn't know what they were doing, which they didn't because they had never run an operation like this in four years. Um, but they're now getting pretty good at it, and uh, and the French are coordinating with the Russians, and they are doing it. But uh, again, it's the rules of engagement that are. Killing any Ameri- any hope for American um, uh, effectiveness in the right. air. Uh, there was an art- article last night that uh, you know here's a satellite photo of the ISIS headquarters in Raqqa. Yeah, Syria. so why is Look that not flattened building. right now this second? You know. Um, well, because apparently they're holding prisoners in the basement of that building, and if we were to bomb it, then the prisoners would have would you know right. would die, and they would be we we, we cannot we cannot kill our enemies on the current rules of engagement. We must admit all refugees on our current you know sacrificial foreign policy. You know, Craig here in the chat room is asking the question. I don't know if you see it up there, Ed. It says uh, he says, "What do you or excuse me, do you think that the U.S. government created ISIS?" and is supporting it with money and weapons. Now, my thought has always been that the U.S., through making a whole bunch of neocon, you know, over-involvement or wrong type of involvement mistakes in the Middle East, has sometimes created conditions conducive to creating ISIS, 
and conducive to having money and weapons passed to ISIS uh, inadvertently. You know, not it's not our our goal, uh, but it has happened because we've had a really bad no, I mean, policy. ISIS, there are a couple books on ISIS out now. I read one of them by Robert Spencer. ISIS was an outgrowth of al-Qaeda in Iraq by Zarqawi. Of course, Zarqawi mm-hmm. was killed in Iraq, but his followers took it over, fled to Syria. Um, and then when the Syrian civil war started, which was an outgrowth of the disaster in Libya, which was entirely Hillary Clinton's fault, by the way, Right. Um, then, then AQI morphed into uh, morphed into ISIS as, and morphed into the Islamic State. So, um, I, you know, the, the the weird thing is everybody blames it on the war in Iraq, and uh, certainly we screwed up the war in Iraq uh, eight ways from Sunday. But um, the real motive, motivator was not the war in Iraq, but the war in Libya, and that's uh, something that I don't think anybody has. Uh, entirely pointed out yet um, that it that the rise of ISIS in Syria can be directly linked to the stupid, stupid uh, war uh, that Hillary Clinton got us into in in Libya. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, why? Well, there was the Arab Spring and blah, 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 and Obama supported overthrowing Gaddafi, who, while a bad guy, was a friend. He supported overthrowing Mubarak, who while a bad guy was a friend, and then uh, as it as it went to Syria, um, Obama apparently supported overthrowing Assad, and so all these groups are like, oh yeah, it's time to go, it's time to it's time to fight, um, right. and uh, of course we never did do anything uh, to Assad until it became too late. Now I think Assad is our best outcome on this one. Believe it or not, I mean, except for the Kurds, who should be allowed to be independent, um, I think Assad is kind of our best outcome. In that sense, I think Putin is bizarrely on the probably the only side that has a chance to have any positive outcome for the world, if not exactly for the Syrian people. I mean, you know, and, and this brings up something else. We've got Putin, and we get to reluctantly cheer for Putin's efforts to defeat our common enemy. And how about Anonymous? Yeah, that was funny, wasn't that? That was funny. That, I mean, they're uh, still at it. I assume that there's going to be more to come. But they took down thousands of Twitter accounts that were supportive of Islamic State is one thing that I heard. Did you hear that there were other successful attacks? Oh, I think they, they found some home addresses of some... ISIS recruiters, yeah. something like that, right? Like, yeah, 5,000. I mean, anonymous are not good guys by any stretch of the imagination. No, but, uh, no. But here we are. Um, We're, we, ha- we have to be glad about things that these guys are doing. Well, you know, why hasn't the NSA done it, right? I mean, why sure. why hasn't the NSA attacked, used cyber attacks against um, the ISIS accounts? Why haven't the NSA attacked the ISIS YouTube accounts. Why? What, I mean, what, I, I don't understand. Why are we, why are we um, relying on a bunch of cyber vigilantes who are not good guys to do cyber attacks against these guys when we have, you know, twenty-five billion dollars a year worth of NSA because they're right. all interested in listening to our our uh, phone conversations and reading our emails instead of going out and attacking the internet. I mean, nothing yeah. in this entire. Nothing in this entire uh, fight in Syria makes sense. It's all, I mean, there was an old uh, 
you know, if, if Obama really was on the side of ISIS, what would he do differently than what? Right, he's right. Doing These now? are the questions I, that we I, would I, ask. Yeah, what would he do differently yeah, than what he's I doing mean, right now? Because he, it's not like he can, you know, overtly do things in favor of ISIS and, and still retain power. I mean, at least Americans seem to be sleeping to a large extent, but at a certain point they would wake up, and then he would not be able to continue to do things in favor of ISIS. So he has to be a little bit cagey about it, right? So what would he do differently? Nothing a, this far. Yeah. But, there's a question by Craig uh, about, uh, you know, the money on ISIS. ISIS got its money from uh, the Saudis, the Gulf states, and to a certain extent, Turkey. Uh, Turkey is, is buying the ISIS oil. Why do they have any oil fields that still exist? Uh, there's a good question. You know, oil fields yeah. are sort of fixed. Now, I, I heard that there were some oil sites, tankers. Right? Some oil tankers were blown up the other day. And, you know, here we are. We're blowing up their oil tankers, and we send little cards down saying, you know, we're going to blow up your oil tankers. You know, you should abandon them within 45 minutes or whatever it is because we're going to blow them up. So we always let the guys go and then blow up their tankers. If if, if you are someone who is supporting the Islamic State by driving an oil tanker that's going to be used to fund the thing, why should we care to give you that little bit of warning? I don't know, but... That's what they're doing. Well, um, I mean, the the one thing, you know, as, as far as if we were serious in Syria, which, of course, we aren't, um, one thing we could do is shut down all road traffic in the whole state. Now, that would that would take thousands of sorties. You know, I mean, it would be a serious effort. Uh, right. You know, lots of drones picking out moving targets, moving target indicator uh, things. And if, 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 if it moves, it dies. And, you know, a month of that and – there is not a whole lot of combat capability left in the Islamic State. Um, and that's kind of what we would do if we were serious. But the problem mm-hmm. is, you know, if you say, even if you drop leaflets and say, if you move, you die, I mean, how many, how many, you know, school buses full of children will the Islamic State, you know, start driving down the road with their convoys? And you, you just got to... You kind of got to make the decision, like, either we're in this or we're not in this. We're in it, we're going to kill them, and if we're not in it, we're... You know, there are 300 American prisoners of war in Hiroshima, and, you know, it was a shame. Yes. Would I yeah. still have, you know, if I were Truman, would I have still ordered the attack? Absolutely, I would. Sure. Um, and we can't, be, we can't be held hostage by, you know, hostages. Um, the, right. You know, level the, level the mosques, level the leadership buildings, destroy all vehicles, and that's that's the only way yeah, to win. Any, any, anything in the, anything in the heart of the ISIS-controlled, you know, the command control center of ISIS, it should go. Yeah. It really should. Um, yeah. But that's not where we are. So on, on a brighter note, we have Ted Cruz, who has been going out there and basically battling Obama in the media to the extent he can. You know, Obama sends out these pot shots when he's giving speeches overseas, and Cruz has challenged him to have a debate on the refugee program face-to-face. What do you think of that? I mean, is this something that you've seen before, a senator get this bold, someone who's running to be president himself, challenge the president to a debate on a particular substantive issue? I I. I don't think I have. Uh, I don't remember. I don't recall it. Politics since the seventies. But then again, American presidents have tended not to criticize their political opponents overseas. I know Clinton did it once or twice, and got some real heat over it. 
and didn't do it anymore. But Obama continues to do it. Um, and, of course, the media is so invested nowadays in his uh, presidency that he doesn't get any um, – he doesn't get any criticism for it. So Obama shouldn't, shouldn't do it at all. But, uh, you know, Cruz is right. Cruz is moving up in the polls. Carson's moving down. Trump, uh, Trump didn't say what the media said he said yesterday, but he's taking a lot of flack for, uh, for, you know, allegedly saying that we have to track all Muslims in the United States, whereas I think he meant all immigrants. He certainly didn't say all Muslims. Um, right. So I, I think Cruz is doing well. And uh, I heard I, I heard he's Rubio's tied for second. So I assume that the yeah. Trump is number one, and that Cruz and Rubio are tied for second. Yeah, but it's the derivative that matters, right? It's it's the direction that it's going. Cruz is moving up. Carson's moving down. Um, right. That, right. That's and way it, more yeah, important. Yeah, and again, this is what we always talk about: the the derivative, the change in the rate of acceleration or a change in velocity, right? Yeah. Um, so Exactly, yeah. Yeah, this, this is the thing that's important. But uh, one thing that I saw, this is just anecdotal, Cruz on one of his Facebook pages, you know he's got two pages, his personal page and then his senator page. And I think, I think it's the senator page where he has a little introductory blurb to his Washington Times piece where he's defending the Terrorist Refugee Infiltration Prevention Act. And... Um, Underneath that, there was a woman who was posting, and, and she at least says that she had been a Trump supporter in the past, and she's basically seriously thinking of jumping over to Cruz. And I would say if there's you know, intelligent people among Trump supporters, if you actually substantively support the things that I would say a proper American sense of life would want you knee-jerk to sort of support from a Trump, you're going to get the real substance behind that from a Ted Cruz. Yeah. Do you want to deal with the immigration and refugee problems in an intelligent way? I think Cruz is probably the best guy on the stage. Um, Trump talks a good game, but I don't know what he would implement when he's in office. You know, I don't, I don't trust the guy. Whereas Cruz, he's got a track record. He tells you exactly what he's going to do. And I think he's going to do it. Yeah. I mean, he's certainly the best candidate for president uh, that I've ever seen in my lifetime. Uh, and he has, a real shot at getting nominated, which is which is strange. I mean, I, I've never seen anybody as good as uh, Cruz. Uh, obviously, we have our differences of opinion with him, but um, I mean, you know, this what he's been doing. You know, he's in the Senate. He's he's uh, he's in a Senate hearing, grilling some environmentalist wacko over the fact that their uh, their model, their global warming models, are screwed up. Right. He's then introducing a bill to limit. Uh, to increase the screening on the refugees, he's out on the stump calling out Obama. I mean, the guy's a machine. Uh, right. You know, he's he's an absolute machine. I'll take him. Uh, you know, I'll take him over anybody anytime. Definitely. Uh, hey, you know he, what he, I wanted to know, do, Ed, Ed? I was going to play this little yeah. clip, and I, I meant to play this during the last show that I had a couple weeks ago. This is uh, part of the speech that Cruz gave, where he was dismantling the Washington cartel. And there's a little 22-second chunk of it here in which he again mentions Ayn Rand on the floor of the Senate. Uh, Bosch Boston actually isolated this audio clip. Let me just play it here for a second, and we can bask in the idea that we have a tied for number two Republican presidential candidate 
an effective senator that's out there speaking the truth for Americans. And he is, you know, repeatedly, even during his campaign, citing Ayn Rand on the floor of the Senate. Let me play this clip here. You know, Ayn Rand wrote in Atlas Shrugged about how productive members of society, business owners, would be forced to go to parasitical politicians. Although some might suggest that's a redundant phrase. To go to parasitical politicians on bended knee, begging for special dispensations. So, yeah, that's just a little excerpt. Someone uh, in the chat room here is asking, did anybody listen to Cruz's entire speech? It was fantastic. I did not listen to that entire speech. Um, the, my favorite no, entire I did, speech that I did, I did hear did that was, piece, though. Yeah, you heard that, that piece before. Um, I mean, would you have thought that this quickly you would have seen a serious contender for president of the United States doing that? No. No, that's, uh, people. All we know is that people run away from Ayn Rand as, as fast as their little legs can carry them, um, and that's uh, you know this is very very heartening. Very very heartening. Uh, um, I do have another call, Ed. So if you have anything else you sure. want to share, fine. But I'm going to go grab it. If not, okay. Well, uh, get get well, and hopefully I will see you next week. Next yes. Friday? Yeah. My oh, no. my plan my plan is to be here next week and be here stronger next week. And I really appreciate you calling in and helping me out. Thanks very much, Ed. Cool. See ya. Okay. Take care. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead and grab another call here. Who's this? Hey, Bosch. Bosch. Hello. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Very good. How are you? Uh, I'm just, doing pretty just, good. Just one thing. Like I said, a, yeah. a, a little weak. Right. Right. Well, let's get here. Um, I got some uh, a few observations when you were talking to Ed about the uh, refugees and so on. Okay. Okay. I mean, when they talk about the religious the religious persecution, now that could include the quote unquote Muslims who are persecuted by ISIS. Sure. You know what I mean? Of so course. that could also include Muslims who who are who are Muslims, but to ISIS they're not devout Muslims, therefore they got to be killed. And also this this idea that you know. These refugees, right? Let's just say they're not jihadists and they're fine. They come here, they become quote unquote radicalized because the only ones who who become radicalized are, are Muslims to become jihadists. Those are those are the, the only ones. Right. So it, they come here, they come to a completely alien culture to their own. They don't have a great work ethic in general across the, the Middle East. There's not entrepreneurs there in general. It really mm-hmm. isn't a place where they're used to actually working hard and, 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 and achieving value. They're, they're just not. So when they come here, they try to get into the American way of life. Some of them fall by the wayside. They get, their lives go sour. And what happens? They fall back to what? To right. Islam. Yes. And then become jihadists years later, maybe even. So, yeah, and, and, and this is so this is again, you know, it's it's like what the National Review article was saying that the fact that their culture is so different and they're not as likely yeah. to assimilate is something to consider, not necessarily on its own, because you know I'm no. not one of these. You you must. I would prefer that people assimilate, but it's not like they have to assimilate Absolutely. in order to have a right. But if you consider that in conjunction with the danger that they're going to become one of the people sympathetic to or participatory in ISIS, you know, jihad, yep. then that's that's really the issue there. 
And also, one one more thing about 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 fighting uh, jihad, about fighting the Islamic enemy. You know, Obama has spent seven years not defeating the Islamic enemy. George Bush, he spent the same time. So, 14 years we have spent since 9/11 not defeating the enemy. Why? Because you need a good man. You, you need a really good moral human being to to get to take on this extreme evil. You need you need a Ted Cruz. I mean, whatever arguments we have with Ted Cruz, I I think we can agree that he's a moral man. He's a principled man. Right. However, we just disagree no, and, and with where everybody, the basis of everybody should from. everybody should read his thoughts on foreign policy. Um, I earlier have shared there was a piece I believe through the Daily Caller um, where it was called the Cruz Doctrine or something like that. So you can read an extensive set of of remarks about his foreign policy, his actual doctrine. But then there's another one that I shared in the program notes for this week. Again, go to DontLetItGo.com for the program notes for this show. But um, it is Ted Cruz discusses his plan to keep America safe. And this is a recent interview in which he discusses how he would keep us safe with the jihad threat. Again, what is the number one job of the United States government to keep us safe? And he recognizes that. He recognizes yes. that. He's explicit about that. He says jihad. I mean, radical Islamic terrorism, whatever. Look, he's a politician. Right. As long as he says Islamic in there, believe me, I'm fine with that. Because right. I know what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. And it's also, Ed brings up the, the, the fact that he's a machine. He is. He's the best campaigner. He's a guy, he's the only guy who's running who really looks like he knows he can win. Uh, uh, Trump is an arrogant fool. He'll go out there and say some some things that we like, say some things that we don't like. But he seems a little almost tired of this whole thing to some extent. He's almost like, oh, God, i got to go through this grind again, debate and whatnot. Whereas Cruz is on point always. He is hungry to get this country back in some semblance of normalcy. He's, he's, he's starving for it. And it looks like he's really energized. And we need that. We absolutely need it. And, and the idea that I remember even a year or two ago, even friends were saying, well, that's impossible. He could never, ever get it. And I said, look, post-Obama, anything goes. We can have a right. decent human being in the White House post-Obama. And it right. looks like it's, it might be what's happening. But anyway, well, I got to go. And, and, uh, and, um, okay, that's great. Um, thanks, thanks for calling in and, and sharing some of that. You know, people who think that they want to vote for Hillary Clinton, um, I by the way, gave them. Yes? Sorry, Frank Miller, uh, the quote-unquote libertarian cartoonist, who is the guy who I've admired for years, one of the main reasons why, why I became a cartoonist's work. He's a libertarian who intends to vote for Hillary Clinton, so I don't know where the hell he is. I don't know where his mind is, but I just have to mention that because he just brought up Hillary voters. But go yeah. on, sorry. No, no, yeah. No, I, I mean, I just basically want to bring up the fact that anybody who thinks that they might want to vote for Clinton because Cruz's position on abortion or gay marriage or everything else is so abhorrent that you could not vote for Cruz, that you'd rather vote for Hillary Clinton over Cruz. I ask you to consider this one story that Judicial Watch put out this week. Clinton has gone after Laugh Factory comedians for making fun of her. So there are these comedians at the Laugh Factory. They put this video out where they're making fun of her. And she has requested that they take the video down. Okay, here she is, a person who has been in government. She's running for office. And she's, quote, asking these at this outlet. She is also demanding personal contact information. Sorry. Oh, should, should I turn you off? Knock me off because yeah, I'm outside. Sorry. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, be safe, Bosch, and listening. we'll we'll thanks. talk to you next time. Thanks, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. Um, so 
here she is. She's also demanding personal contact information for these comedians. Talk about a chilling effect on freedom of expression. There is a grand tradition in our country of comedians and others lampooning our politicians, our political candidates, and she is telling you right now, again, while she's running for office even, she should be hiding her tendency to do this while she's running for office, you would think. But I guess she's figured she can get away with everything, including, in in effect, you know, moves towards censorship. So this is definitely something to to think about and consider. I, I want to move in a little bit to my point about the right to bear arms and some thoughts that I've had about it over the last week or so. Um, in the past, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not obviously an expert at all. I, we could talk to Ed all day probably about guns and stuff, but uh, my thinking on the right to bear arms in the past, I've had sort of a dual reason why I think it's it's a proper right. One, of course, is self-defense. Yes, we do generally delegate our right of self-defense to a proper government, but a proper government is limited in its power and scope. It is not omniscient. It is not omnipotent. And so you need to have the limited right of self-defense to, you know, when there's an exigent circumstance, defend yourself while the authorities are not capable of protecting you. This is the exact thing that de Blasio has denied to New Yorkers and he's expecting them to just go about their business in the wake of an ISIS video without carrying around them uh, adequate means of, of self-defense against lethal force. Um, so that's one component, self-defense. We could debate about you know that right of self-defense and what sort of scope of weapons does it grant you and you know all day long. I am not an expert, but there's a certain reasonable range of weapons that you should be able to have for purposes of limited self-defense in those exigent circumstances where your government cannot protect you. The second way I do see the Second Amendment is as, of course, a check on overbearing government. And I think some people don't take that as much very seriously, but I see an analogy to, you know, why do you make a contract? Why do you have an actual written contract with a person who is a good person that you just want to do some business dealings with, you do it as insurance. So even if you're saying, okay, I'm delegating my right of self-defense to this government, uh, this government is largely respecting of individual rights, particularly the right to free speech, so I can always you know, speak my mind and promote change in a better direction. You know, But nonetheless, having an idea that you need to have... Um, you know, some sort of recourse to uh, backup, you know, if, if that isn't working out. I don't think that means that you therefore are any less serious about delegating your right of self-defense to the government. Um, you're saying, look, uh, there may be a time where our government is showing itself not to be one that defends individual rights, that in fact is crossing the line and violating them too much, particularly the right to free speech. And uh, there may be a time that you need to have those weapons as a final piece of insurance. What we've been reminded of in the last week is that if you have a government that is defaulting on its job of properly protecting you, that you may need to even more consider the need to defend yourself. And of course, that is one of the immediate things that came up uh, for my, you know in my mind this last week and in, in the 
light of the Paris attacks. But there's there's one more thing about it uh, that occurred to me, and it was not, you know, before even the Paris attacks happened, I was thinking about the conversation that I had a couple weeks ago with Debbie, who is a frequent listener and caller into the show. And uh, we were talking about the uh, there was a pro-science blogger who had decided that under all of the pressure that he was getting maybe through his um, employer and everything else, uh, we don't know exactly what pressures were being brought to bear on him. We know that there were a number of so-called special interest groups like anti-GMO and stuff who were harassing this guy. And he decided, look, I've had too much. I'm just going to go out of the public light, you know, limelight now. And I was talking about, is that a legitimate, is that not? Yes, you have the right to do it, argued Debbie. But nonetheless, we should not be doing it. We should not let people shut down the spread of good ideas. They should not be able to silence us. And we were going on and talking back and forth a little bit more about the issue of, you know, our founding fathers. And I think Debbie was the first to to bring it up in the conversation there um, that the founding fathers said, when we're fighting for liberty, when we're fighting for our rights out here, when we're fighting for the true pursuit of happiness in the United States, we need to remember that our founding fathers were willing to give up their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And how in America we really don't have that attitude as much anymore. And we we have become complacent. We have not had this idea that we need to remain vigilant, that we need to remain ready if we're going to fight for the good to potentially put at risk our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, do we actually have to put at risk our sacred honor in order to defend the good? We could have that debate another day, okay? But lives and fortunes, for example, Um we don't have that. And and I, I do believe that right now with some of the real dangers that our political leadership is putting us under, that it's more important than ever to exercise our Second Amendment rights. But at the same time, I I have this feeling that if you do go out there and you purchase a gun and you are trained and you, you know, actually acquire the skills to be competent in using those weapons, that you can acquire a self-confidence. You can acquire the self-confidence that is necessary to, again, be ready to put at risk your lives and fortunes of sacred honor, um, where you, you know, it's, it's the physical basis. And, of course, physically is not the only way that we need to be prepared to defend ourselves. We need to be prepared to defend ourselves morally with self-righteousness and also intellectually with powerful arguments. But I don't think you can discount the ability and the readiness to defend yourself on a physical basis, that security, that self-confidence that it could give you to help rekindle the spirit of the Founding Fathers and this idea that we are prepared to, to fight for the good, to fight for a culture that embraces the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of your own rational self-interest. You know, just like in self-improvement, they tell you that the foundation is sleep. And actually right now I'm saying sleep is something I'm very, very sorely lacking. Um, but, you know, the the physical is the foundation, your sleep and then your diet, your exercise, that this is going to affect your food, your uh, your mood. 
It's going to affect your ability to install new habits, to improve yourself, all of those things. You could talk about with defending ourselves and defending our culture that it's the physical that's at the root of that to the extent that you feel physically capable of defending yourself and then, of course, intellectually, morally capable that this is going to increase uh, that vigilance. I do have another call that I want to grab before I go. And I'm going to uh, save a few minutes at the end because I'm going to play you a new piece of music, which I think came at exactly the right time for me. Uh, hi, who's this? You're on the air. Hi, it's me. Hello? Matt. Who is this? Hi, Amy. It's Matt. Matt? Yeah. Okay, I, I, can't, I, can't hear you. I can't hear you too well, but go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to say, I think you made a mistake there when you said that we delegate our our right of self-defense to the government. It's retaliatory self-defense, but not uh, the right of self-defense. Okay, so you're saying we delegate our right of the use of, of retaliatory force, in effect, to the government? Right. But 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 not yeah. the right entirely, yeah. And, I mean, sorry if I misspoke there. Again, I'm a little addled, but... Obviously, I, I mean to preserve for us some component of that right, which is the need to defend ourselves in exigent circumstances. So you're right. We don't delegate it entirely. We delegate the right to the use of retaliatory force. But in a proper government, we retain uh, you know, an element of that to compensate for the fact that no police force is omniscient, omnipotent, et cetera. I also wanted to say that uh, a lot of people, I think, make a mistake in that uh, they worry about uh, weapons other than just standard firearms. Uh, and, uh, for instance, say a tank. Should you should the Second Amendment guarantee your right to own a tank? And I see a lot of people make the argument, but they make it on the basis of potential versus the actual. And so if you take it in the same vein as uh, potential versus actual, in terms of abortion, uh, you got to let people, got to let people own tanks and whatever. Right. <laughs> you got to let so people I, own tanks if you're gonna if you're gonna have. Now, um, Ed Powell here in the chat room, he has I think an interesting clarification on this, which is he says the right to self defense in cold blood we do delegate. He says, in emergency situations, we continue to hold the right to self-defense. So it is a, a kind of a clean, bright line delegation, but you draw that bright line, uh, you know, the in cold blood versus emergency. So the, you know, the retaliatory use of force, if if it's an in cold blood situation, belongs with the government. Okay. Thoughts on that? Yeah, you agree. Anyway. Uh, I'd have to think about that. That sounds right, offhand. Okay. Any anything else, Matt? Before I zoom no. on. No. Okay. No, but thanks. Well, thank you. I think you're a first-time caller. Or at least I haven't remembered. So, if you are, thank you. And if you haven't called in a while, welcome back. And we'll hope to hear from you again. Thanks very much. Okay. Um, I've got here in the chat room. Rob Abiera says. Salt Lake City just elected a gay mayor. Any thoughts on what that says about religion in this country? I think that is fabulous. Not necessarily because I'm for a gay mayor, but, it, 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 you know, again, like you're implying here, Rob, um, and I'm not against a gay mayor. I'm just like, I don't just think sexuality has anything to do with 
whether the person should be a mayor. But what I do like about it is the is what you're implying that you would think in Salt Lake City of all places, religion would have a stronghold on public office. And yet if they elected a homosexual mayor, that says probably not. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. I like it. Um, now in the chat room, we have people disagreeing with me about assimilation. Uh, if you come here, do you must you assimilate? I think, of course think it's better if people come here assimilate, but should they not have a right to immigrate if they're not going to fully assimilate? And what does assimilation mean? Maybe we need another show to talk about assimilation. We were talking about it somewhat in in terms of immigration, but but that's about it. Um, but anyway, I have actually come about to the end of my program notes, which is good. I'm coming about to the end of my energy as well. I do thank everyone who joined me back here today for my first show back after surgery. I do plan on being back here tomorrow on Black Friday, as they call it, for, for a post-Thanksgiving show. I'm not going to eat too much turkey, so I shouldn't be in too much of a turkey coma, but I am going to indulge in some of it. I hope all of you will have wonderful Thanksgiving dinners as well. If you want to continue the discussion, you can go over to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and leave comments about today's show. You can follow me on Facebook. I've got both a, a page, the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. I have a personal profile that you can follow there as well. I'm out on Twitter at Amy Peacock. So let's continue to talk throughout the week. Uh, if you want to become a show supporter, I very much welcome that. Um, there's a link to donate and support both the podcast and the blog. Mostly, of course, podcast is what I'm doing lately. And just click on that link and go through PayPal. Those of you who have supported and those of you who support on a monthly basis, I really appreciate it, particularly now. I've got these crazy medical bills, so some of it is being diverted to help with that, and I appreciate those of you who are doing that. So I want to leave you with a new piece of music. Those of you who have been following the show for a long time know that I use as an intro to this show a clip of a little piece by the Jezebels. It's an Australian band called the Jezebels. The song is called Mace Spray. And the Jezebels do not endorse me. The poor Jezebels, I'm sure that most of them don't agree with many of my views, if not most of my views. Uh, I did interview Haley Mary, the lead singer, and she did say that she was a fan of Ayn Rand, but she's more liberal and, um, you know, sort of feminist, she describes herself as. So do not impute my ideas to the Jezebels by the mere fact that I am promoting them. But I, I really like them as my favorite contemporary band. And as I go out from this show today, I am going to play you their new song. They have a new album that's going to come out in by February of 2016. I guess all of it will be released. You can buy the first song on iTunes now, or you could pre-order the whole album and you can get this song. This song is called Come Alive by the Jezebel. So I'm going to go ahead and play that as we're out of here. And I hope you again, you know, I hope you have a, a, a great Thanksgiving. I hope all of you stay safe and vigilant out there. And I look forward to talking to you next Friday at the same time. So take care, everyone. <laughs>